0: Ain't here, so we're gonna crack this egg open. I'm only kidding. All right. In all seriousness, I hope it has been clear that the Book of Revelation is not intended, and was not written to promote helpless speculation. Um. But that—that's what most people think this book was uh, written about. But when this book was written and read in churches in the first century, you didn't have a lot of people making charts about how things were literally going to be fulfilled over the next few thousand years. Instead, you had people who were struggling in their faith, facing temptation, walking through persecution and trials on all sides. I'm very impressed. Not one chart by our pastor. Even David Platt, who um, um, he does the, whatever you call him, secret church, thank you, pulled out a chart when I was going over and researching for the sermon. Granted, it was a much different type of chart, but it still counts. Um, We got to realize, though, that this whole book, all 66 books, points us to Jesus, from in the beginning, God, all the way to amen. All of it points to Christ, and I find the last bit of Scripture, Revelation 22, 6 through 21, what we are covering today, to be so good and so wonderful, and it's wonderful news for the Christian, like the original Star Wars trilogy good. And it is really bad news for the believers, Light the new Star Wars trilogy bad. (laughs) And that wonderful news for the believer is Christ is coming back. That is how scripture ends. That is where the Bible stops. But this is only the end of the beginning. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in the last paragraph in the last book of the Narnia series. He wrote, The things that began to happen, after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The end of Revelation is only the beginning of a story where every chapter will be better Than the one before it. In a sense, that is the point of revelation, is it not? If we read and study this book rightly, it will inevitably leave us wanting more. When I was going through my ordination and Pastor Michael was guiding me through that process, we spoke on the second coming and he gave me the best piece of advice when it came to Christ returning. He is. It's all that matters. He is coming back. Not pre trib, not post trib, not premillennial, post millennial. That's secondary. What's important is that he's coming back. Now, I've studied all that stuff in seminary now, and I have opinions and ideas on them, but what's important is that he's coming back. And that is what these last set of verses remind us. We now come to the epilogue, the write-up on the apocalypse. All the glorious and gracious purposes of God, ordained from before the foundation of the world, they have now been attained. The rebellion of angels and mankind is over. The rebels are all in everlasting punishment of the lake of fire. The king of kings is now sitting on the eternal throne as, a, as the sovereign with his father over the new heaven and the new earth. The redeemed, the glorified saints bought by the slain lamb are now in their resurrection bodies, dwelling in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth, and particularly living in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And God's glory fills it with bla- blazing light, starting from inside the diamond holy city, and splattering its beauty throughout the whole new heaven and new earth. Light, beauty, holiness, joy, the presence of Christ and the Father. Worship and praise, service, likeness to Jesus are all the realities of this eternal state. Come, Lord Jesus. That is what we as believers should be crying out. In our time together, we are going to read and examine the last 16 verses of this wonderful and amazing Revelation of Jesus. We are going to read Revelation 22, 6 through 21 together. And since Pastor Micah has kept y'all seating, y'all can stay seated as we read this word. Just sit in reverence to God's holy word, in verse, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what soon must, take, or what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, wanting you to come, Lord. Speak, for your servants are listening. May we be focused on you, Lord. May your glory be revealed. May your truths be revealed. Lord, I'm, I'm not Pastor Micah, but I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. We love you and we need you, Jesus. Amen. (laughs) You may stay seated. All right, the first part, verses 6 through 12, are directed to the Christians, and the latter part is directed to non-Christians. And we will get to that, but first I want uh, us to dive deep into verses 6 through 12. Remember, as we read in the prologue in chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it talks about his second coming. That is the theme of it. And here we find that what our response is to be, to that second coming. Now I got a whole bunch of truths and subtruths and subsubtruths, so just buckle up and enjoy the ride. Kelly, stay awake. But the first thing we must see is the believer's immediate response to Christ's imminent return. These verses we just read give the feeling of a furious rush. Nothing makes that more evident than the fact that he repeats three times: Behold, I come soon. Behold, I come soon. Behold, I come soon. And then down in verse 20, Come Lord Jesus. It's like he's trying to tell us something, is he not? I don't know your level of Bible study, but if the Bible repeats itself three times in the span of 16 verses, you might want to make note of that. Highlight it or underline it if that's your thing. And as we see, the key word in this text is soon. He is coming soon. You will notice it in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. And the term is tachu, for which we get tachometer, which means speed. Like Ricky Bobby speed. I want to go fast. Like, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming hastily. I'm coming fast, quick, and in a hurry. And to quote the great Tom Cruise in the movie Top Gun, he has the need, and that need is speed. Three times in the book of Revelation, it states that. Six times. Twice, it is a warning. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 16. He is coming soon with judgment on his mind. Four times it is a promise, a promise of blessing. The three that I read in chapter 22 and the one in chapter 3, verse 11. In all four of those, he is coming to bless. In the first two, he's coming to judge. We also see in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, it reveals he is coming like a thief. That is repeated in chapter 16, verse 15. It means he will come unexpectedly. He's coming soon, and he's coming when not expected. That's kind of the point of being a thief, to get in, get out, do it in a hurry so you don't get caught, and be quick so they can't um, prepare and put up a defense. So he's coming soon, and he's sitting, or he's coming soon and like a thief. Now, you might be just sitting there going, hold on, come out. It's been 2,000 years. Where's he at? He ain't here yet. Well, that's from the human viewpoint, is it not? From the vantage of god we remind ourselves that a day with the lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day and from god's perspective it's only been two days in light of reality that's very very brief and understand this people in the new testament believed that jesus could come at any time they believed that he could come in their lifetime that is very clear if you read the new testament that's very obvious that all believers felt that jesus could come at any time they didn't have such a highly refined and defined, I'm trying to use words that Brother Dave would use, scheme as to conclude that he couldn't come in their time because this had to happen and this had to happen and this had to happen and there was this very, very carefully laid out scenario of sequences that had to happen and until those took their place in line, he could not come. No, they lived as if he could come at any moment and they believed that. Many believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. But what does it have to do with the rapture? The whole Thessalonian church was preoccupied with the return of Christ. And Paul had written them his first epistle and told them, Jesus is coming, you're waiting for his coming. They already were waiting for his coming. You see that in chapter uh, 1, verse 10 of his first letter. And he also said to them in that first letter in verse four, um, chapter 4, verse 15, we who are alive and remain when he comes. They were living in the anticipation of the return of Jesus. And what happened was some of them were so convinced that Jesus would come in their lifetime that they actually stopped working. And that is not uncommon. Every time some guy comes along and writes another book on when Jesus is going to come, people that buy into it do exactly that. They stop working. Back in 1988, I was a whopping one-year-old. But a guy wrote 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988. It's one thing to write a book and be wrong, but it's a completely different thing to write a book and be wrong 88 times. (laughs) And people bought into it. People sold their property. They got into their pajamas. They got up on the roof, and they just waited. Hopefully they got down. Well, it was no different than what happened in Thessalonica. People in anticipation of the return of Jesus quit their jobs. But the point is they lived in light of the reality that Jesus could come at any time. Any natural reading of the New Testament reveals the fact that Jesus could come at any time. That's really unarguable as far as I'm concerned. And if you disagree, you can complain to Pastor Michael when he comes back. But they didn't know when, but they believed it could happen at any time, including their own lifetime. And the church has held on to that because it is such great motivation to live every moment knowing Jesus might just come in the next one. Remember that the next time you're about to yell at the TV because the Jags lost yet another game. <laughs> or you're laying on your horn because someone cut you off. Or you're about to go ballistic at a co-worker. Remember that. To quote the great American philosopher, philosopher Joe Dirt, Some pronounce it Joe Dyrte. Is that where you want to be when Jesus comes back? I would hope not. That's funny. Y'all need to see that movie. We do not stop working just because we know Christ is returning. We continue to do our kingdom work day in and day out. We continue to work our jobs and live our lives, but we wait with great anticipation, but we continue to work. In the book of Matthew, Jesus actually speaks on this matter in chapter 24. No one knows the day or hour. So if someone writes a book, 20 reasons Jesus is returning in 2020, you know he is dead wrong, even though it feels like the end times to some of us. Okay? But we know, because the Bible says so, no one knows the day or hour. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Notice what they were doing. They weren't in their PJs on their roofs taking a nap. They were working. Don't stop working. Here's a fun question I like to ask the youth from time to time. When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? The Great Commission isn't a suggestion if you have time. Followers of Jesus, you need to share the gospel. It says go therefore and make disciples. Get to work. Second thing. I want you to see is the believers need to trust in the word of the Lord. And he said to me you know, in verse six These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what soon what must soon take place. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book: if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And then verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The angel is saying, John, what you have seen is reality. These words are faithful and true. We see a few chapters back in chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus is called faithful and true. In other words, the angel is affirming the validity of everything John has seen. He is saying to him, John, this wasn't some crazy dream. You didn't eat bad sushi and start hallucinating. Everything that you have heard and seen in this revelation is faithful and true. The scenes, the visions, the revelation, the conversations with heavenly creatures have been so startling and so graphic and so unearthly and so supernatural and so frightening and so wondrous and so amazing and so majestic and so transcendent that some might consider them a fantasy. But the angel said, what you have seen is exactly How it is. And that is a good word to those who want to algorize the book of Revelation. For those who want to shove it way back and make it all happen in 70 AD, it is exactly as John has received it. They are accurate descriptions of accurate events and events to come. And I want you to notice this as well. This is pretty cool. The phrase, the God of the spirits and the prophets. What the angel is saying, this all comes from God. The source of all this information is God. The same God, and this is the important part, who is the God of the spirits of the prophet. That is to say, the same God who moved on the hearts of the Old Testament prophets. The same God who spoke his word through Old Testament prophets is the God who has now revealed this. In other words, this too is equally inspired. And these verses also reveal to us that we are to take nothing from them or add anything to them. We do not Thomas Jefferson the Bible. y'all know that? y'all know he had his own version of the Bible? He would actually cut out anything that he didn't like. Um, so it was like really small Bible. He, he was a heretic. And understand that heretics and heresy and false gossip, uh, false prophets they actually start in the church. heresy is a truth or a twist on the truth of God's word. and one or two things are going to happen in your life. You are either going to bend the word to fit your life, or you will bend your life to align with the Holy Word of God. And when it comes to false gospels, what is what happens is they don't start out that way. They slowly move away from the Word of God, and what ends up happening is ultimately your feelings become the authority, and they start to deny that you were bought at the cross for a price. And there are some very popular false teachers and false gospels out there. One of the biggest ones is when I hear people say, the God I serve would not do X, Y, and Z. The God I serve would not want me to go through something so difficult. And I always respond, you are absolutely right. Because the God you serve, you just made up. You are not talking about the God of the Bible. The God you actually serve is you. And when people say, my Jesus, I don't know about your Jesus, but my Jesus, no, no. No, 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 no. No, no, Scooter. There is only one Jesus And I'm willing to say that your Jesus does not align with the holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. If I had to take a guess. Now Peter, in 2 Peter 2, actually tells us, don't be shocked when this happens. Because it's going to happen. And we see this everywhere in our culture today. And the only way to know that you are dealing with a false teacher or false gospel is to actually know the Bible. If the only time you read or hear about Jesus is here you got to pump those numbers up, man. Those are rookie numbers. Take your Bible out of your car and read it. Download the Bible app. Stop scrolling through Facebook and Instagram all day. Ain't nothing good on there anyways. Read the Word. So you can actually know if someone is adding or taking away from the Word of God, and you can deepen and strengthen your relationship with God. And we do not add or take away because why? Because God will take away the tree of life. Now, I'm going to go on a limb and say that these verses are not found in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. I didn't verify it, but I'm going to go on a hunch. And there are a whole bunch of ways adding and taking away looks like these days. And if you aren't careful, you may not even notice them. These false gospels, and very quickly, I just want to identify four. The first one is the prosperity gospel. You can pack a church out if you say, give to God and he will give you health, wealth, and happiness. And the ultimate heresy isn't that God wants to prosper you. God does want to prosper you. He just doesn't want to prosper you with cash, candy, and Camaros. He wants to prosper you in a completely different way. And those are, and you know, cash and Camaros, those type of things typically drive a wedge between us and the giver of new life, if we're being honest. But then the second thing, uh, uh, second false gospel I want to mention is theological liberalism. And the angel is warning about this one, trying to explain away the Bible, theological liberalism. To move away from the authority of Scripture is to move away from God himself. And every mainline denomination has wrestled over this. And what happens is the Bible says a few things that make us a little uncomfortable. And so they have to come to a decision, and they have two options. They can either align with the Word of God, or they can um, have the Word of God align to the match their worldview they already have. And what will happen when they change the word of God is you will start to hear this kind of language. And they'll still hang around the Bible, but they'll say things like the Bible contains truths from God or contains words from God. That's going to be what you're dealing with. But what they fail to realize is the Bible is the word of God. And to move away from the authority of Jesus is to move away from Scripture. And then legalism. Legalism is where we forget the gospel and say, if I obey, then I will be accepted. The things the Spirit has convicted me about, I will condemn you for. Let me give you an example. Is it a sin to drink alcohol? We know it's a sin not to get drunk, or to get drunk. We know it's a sin to get drunk, but is it a sin to drink alcohol? And that is a gray area for some of us, and it's pretty black and white for others. We are Baptists, so we believe Jesus turned water into welches. Okay, And what's that old joke? How do you keep a Baptist from drinking at a party? Invite two of them. We do not like to talk about this kind of stuff. Some of y'all are squirming in your pews right now. Are there Christians that should not drink alcohol because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Yes and amen. Our family history and medical issues and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I don't drink. But if I was to take the Spirit's conviction on my life and place it on, the, on others for their salvation, I have moved away from the good news of the gospel and the freedom that Jesus has offered each and every one of us. And I have moved into my own law, and that is the heresy of legalism. And the last one I want to identify is Christian self-help, where those tips and tricks on how to be a better version of yourself. problem with those is you aren't in need of a life coach. You're not just a little bad And you can clean up a few things and you're going to be good to go. You need a savior because you fall short of the glory of God and only Jesus can solve that. And understand that this is no way an exhaustive list of false gospels. There are a thousand more out there. The similar theme of each one, though, is it takes God off of his rightful throne and places man there. Their goal is not the advancement of the kingdom for the good of the gospel. It is ultimately glory for themselves and advancement of their own kingdom. And according to the Bible, that is what the unrepentant want. They want to be on the throne. They don't want a Lord. Everybody wants a Savior, but nobody wants a Lord over their life. That brings me to the third truth. Hell is a door locked from the inside. It is ultimately what the unrepentant want. The door is locked from the inside because of the unrepentant. Notice what the angel says about hell in Revelation 22.11. And this might just be one of the most illuminating verses in scripture about hell. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. The people in hell never repent. They remain filthy. They remain haters of God's authority. Their hearts remain unjust and corrupted. It's a door locked from the inside. Yes, they hate the torment, but they hate the authority of God all the more. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce describes a bus trip from hell to heaven where the people from hell who get into heaven hate it and want to go back to hell. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said he'd rather go into nothingness than surrender his will to the God of the Bible. Problem is, he didn't go into nothingness. He went to hell. Some theologians have said that this is what is being communicated by the image of eternal fire and the worm that never dies. Fire represents sensational desire, and if you leave a fire unchecked, it'll continue to grow. And that's what sin is like if we don't receive Jesus' invitation to save us. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, bitterness, always blaming others. At first, it feels like something distinct from you, that you can criticize in yourself and keep contained and stop when you won't. But if you leave it unchecked, it grows and grows until it consumes you, and it becomes part of your personality. You become your grumbling, you become your complaining. Hell is where the sins you went and repent of on earth consume you, burning like a never-ceasing fire in your heart. You become your jealousy. You become your insecurity or your racism, your hate, your pride, your bitterness, your dishonesty, fear, whatever it is. Only Jesus can remove the curse from your heart. And that is when you turn to him in repentance and faith and cry out for healing. And understand that death represents a line where you become fixed in the decisions you made on earth, And the sins you wouldn't repent of consume you. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And this is why, by the way, God can't let sinners into heaven. If God let us into heaven with sin, we'd unleash the destructive powers of hell there too. Heaven would be soon filled with rape, pride, violence, dishonesty, treachery, and cruelty. That is why we have to have urgency in sharing the gospel. And if they aren't receptive to the message, they aren't rejecting you. They are rejecting God. Talk to people about coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior because that is how Revelation ends. It is one final plea from God to come to him. And that is the fourth truth we see. God's final plea given to those who still are rejecting him. The final section can be divided simply into two points. The invitation and the incentives to respond. The invitations start in verse 17 and the Uh, incentives throughout 13 through 21 we're going to start with the invitation in verse 17 it says the bride or the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price the spirit is first mentioned the holy spirit and then the bride which is the church They desire the Lord to come because they want to see the end of sin. They want to see the exaltation of righteousness. They want to see the glory of the kingdom. They want to see the majesty of Jesus Christ. They want to see the enemy Satan defeated, sin dealt with, and the eternal glory of God manifest throughout the universe. Both of them crying out, come. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to come because he wants the work of redemption completed. The enemies of hell banished. The church wants to be a glorious church, not having spot or blemish or wrinkle or any other such thing, but holy and without blemish. So they cry out to Jesus to come. And then the verse shifts in the middle and others are invited to say, come. Anyone who hears the message of the gospel and joins the church and joins the spirit can say, come Lord Jesus. And then he comes to call to sinners and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And there is a call for sinners to come, to recognize their need, to see the source of help for that need in Jesus, and to take of the water of life without cost. Salvation comes to those who recognize that their desperate, threatening condition in sin, which here is described as thirst. Jesus is the living water. Taking and drinking of him removes the sin. So there is the invitation come, come. Come join the Spirit and the church. You don't have to look at the return of the King of Kings as the frightening reality. If you come to Christ, you can long for his reappearing as the Spirit and the church does. Amen. What a wonderful invitation that is. That is the invitation of the unbeliever. Come. But there are incentives to come as well, and I'm going to cover two of them. And the biggest and best reason to respond to the invitation is you get God. You get to have relationship with Jesus. Look back at verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then look down at verse 16. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. When you come to Jesus, you get the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the root and offspring of David, and the bright morning star. Those are all titles of Jesus, the Son of God, the living Lord, the eternal infinite transcendent one our bright morning star in the ancient near east jews used the term star to describe a hero so jesus is the hero of heroes the brightest star the morning star that shines brightly to shatter darkness just before the herald of the dawn it's not just anybody who's inviting the sinner to come it is the majestic living lord of heaven i am not the inviter jesus is when you share the gospel You are not the inviter. Jesus is. When we do these things, understand it is Jesus who is working through you. He is the one who has sent the invitation. We are just the messenger. And there's another compelling reason to come to Jesus, another compelling reason to believe in the one who died and rose again, to repent of your sin and embrace him as Lord and Savior. Look at verse 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right through the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This refers to the idea of removing sin, and the only way to remove sin is through the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. These are very familiar, very important verses. This says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Christ, his atoning work alone that can wash away sins. Then the verse goes on to say, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, some might read this and say, I am not a dog. I am not a sorcerer, an immoral person, a murderer, an idolater. But that is not the idea. This is not an exhaustive list. It is representative. But outside are the dogs. We have domesticated the dog in our culture. In fact, some of y'all treat your dog better than you treat your kids. You have outfits for them and a stroller so they can lay down while you take them for a walk. I don't understand the logic behind that one, but it's a thing. You look at your dog as a member of your family. You love your dog, but I got news for you. Your dog doesn't love you back. He loves that you are the bringer of bacon. He loves that you give him food and attention. And you can sit here and say, I'm wrong. But if you were to die in your house by yourself and little Fido got hungry, you just became a Scooby snack. I'm just saying. But they're still better than cats. Don't get me wrong. Cats don't even pretend to love you. All right. They're just waiting for the right time to usurp you and take over the house. All right, but getting back to my point, I'm getting sidetracked. You cherish and love your dog. That ain't how they were treated in the ancient world. They were despicable creatures for the most part, and calling someone a dog was referring to a person of the lowest character. I haven't even made a Georgia joke yet, but it's coming. Dogs in the ancient Near East were not particular about what they did in view of everyone. They had no desire to hide their less desirable functions. Dogs will leave their mark anywhere and everywhere, except on the football field. (laughs) Dogs were synonymous with the lowest, the scum of the earth. In fact, Jews would call Gentiles dogs, which, of course, infuriated the Gentiles and demeaned them. This is even found in both the New Testament and Old Testament. Isaiah 56.10 says they are all silent dogs. Other versions say they are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. It is used as well in the New Testament with similar kinds of significance. It is to describe the impurest of the impure, the grotesque. The first reference where dogs are used to describe humans because of grotesque behavior is actually uh, Deuteronomy 23.18. You can write it down if you want to look it up. Deuteronomy 23.18. And it actually refers to homosexual prostitutes. And they were considered the lowest of the low. They are going to be outside the kingdom. And so are sorcerers. That refers to people engaged in magic and drugs. Um, Pharmakia is the word from which we get pharmacy. Magic was associated with drugs supposedly to induce some euphoria and some ascent to the deities. It engaged them also in demon activity. Outside are immoral persons. Outside are murderers, that's pretty clear. Outside are idolaters, those who worship other than the one true God. Which is why the angel is so quick to stop John from worshiping him. Where it says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Outside is everyone who loves and practices lying. And this isn't the only representative list in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5 has another such list. It talks about those people who will be outside the kingdom. The people that are sec, uh, who practice sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. Now the point I want to make out of verses 14 and 15 is simply this. Hear the invitation because heaven is exclusively for people whose sins have been cleansed. It isn't that none of us have ever done these things. It is that we have been forgiven. Who doesn't want to be forgiven? It's the one who cherishes sin. If it is unforgiven, if you do not come to the foot of the cross and embrace Jesus, you will die in your sin, and Jesus in John 7, where I go, you cannot come. You will not go to heaven. You will burn forever in the lake of fire. So the invitation is this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, all through Revelation, we have seen the doom of those who reject Christ. The world has been destroyed as we have seen. People have been plagued and tortured and starved and shaken and demonized and scared and maimed and killed and damned to a lake of fire. In all those pictures, all those visions, all of those prophecies are true. That is exactly what will happen. That is exactly what is happening now as people are going to hell without Jesus. The invitation is there. And finally, one last point very quickly. Sinners should come because of the certainty of Christ's return. One last time, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, says John. Come, Lord Jesus. These are the last words Jesus spoke. John hears from the Lord himself, the last words Jesus spoke heard on earth. The next will be the shout when he comes for his church. The last words, yes, I am coming soon. It's going to happen, folks, exactly the way a book, the book of Revelation describes it. It is 100% certain. And John affirms, amen. That just means, so let it be. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. And what does that mean? It means, I'm ready, doesn't it? I'm ready, like Paul. It means, I love his appearing. I long for his appearing. Peter recognized that there were false prophets who scoffed at the coming of Jesus. Their love of sensuality, their greed caused them to mock the return of Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, those mocking scoffers said, Come, or, uh, these mocking scoffers come and say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Everything's just going along. It'll all keep going along. It's the theory of uniformity. It'll always be the same. No, it won't. And Peter reminds those scoffers about the flood that destroyed the whole world. Things aren't going to continue the way they are. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, everything in revelation will happen. Can you say amen? Come, Lord Jesus. I can. I pray that you can. And then the benediction of the Bible. And wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know that if the Lord was going to pick a last word, it would be grace. The last word is the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And the last thing the Bible says is available to sinners is what? Grace. After all this, grace. Is it yours? Are you ready? The point is, everybody, all the time, better be watchful and ready and alert because he is coming in a time that no man knows and in an hour that no one is expecting. Until that hour, there is grace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Lord. Come come lord jesus lord you have invited us to say come and we say come for those that do not have a personal and real relationship with you lord may they come and drink from the water of life may we live with anticipation that you are coming back that we will move with urgency and our kingdom work upon your arrival Lord, may you have been glorified through all of this. We love you, we need you, and we long for your return. Amen. Would you stand with me?